0: All right, we've got another episode of Dirt Talk today. I am going to be joined by Heath Hanna. He owns Contour Mining and Construction out of Columbia, South Carolina. And we're going to talk about how he started in the industry, how he found his way to a Caterpillar dealer as a dealer instructor, and then how he made the leap from dealer instructor to starting his own earth-moving company that's done extraordinarily well in the Carolinas. So how are you, Heath?
1: I'm doing great, Aaron. I appreciate you having me on today.
0: Yes, sir. Oh, I'm excited about this. I think I, man, I met you on my first ever paid trip to go see that logging company, Bellweather Logging, in South Carolina, and you'd sent me a message on Instagram saying, "Hey, you should stop by the office." And then you took me out to that, I think Martin site.
1: Yeah, that's that's been a little while ago.
0: It's been a while. Yeah. Well, I wanted to jump right into it. So how? I guess, can you take us all the way back to the very beginning? How'd you get started in the the dirt world to begin with?
2: So
1: kind of like, you know, most all kids out there in the world, that pretty much everyone has grown up with, you know, some kind of tractor or truck or something when they were kids. I've always been enamored by heavy equipment and construction sites. And from just a young age, just... Love heavy equipment. My grandfather was a farmer, and so it was around heavy equipment on the farm and stuff with him when I was younger. And my dad started out when I was, I don't know, I guess maybe 8, 10, something like that. He got me a subscription to Equipment World magazine. And so since I was a kid, I have just thumbing through Equipment World magazines and just had always, you know, had an affinity for, equipment and large heavy civil works and so that kind of grew into you know more of a passion my father was in the HVAC business and when I was in early high school I was about I guess 14 or something came home from school one summer and basically he was like you know if you like doing this type of work if you like heavy equipment you need to go and try that and See if that's what your real calling is, and you know. Ever since I was a kid, I'd worked with my dad and my brother doing HVAC work in the summers and on the weekends and school breaks and stuff. And so I was pretty excited. He had a friend whose name was Joe Vaughn. He had a small construction company in the upstate doing mostly residential subdivisions, some commercial work. and So I would have worked for them at the young age of. 14 running the first machine I ever ran I guess sig machine was the 623b paddle pan and so that was kind of it for me from from then on I was for like, weekend spring break summer break I was you know running equipment and just fell in love with it
0: did you go to college
1: so I was in my senior year I wasn't really a bad student I just School wasn't my big cup of tea. And I, you know, loved working and loved what I did. And we had a surveyor that did all of our layout back then. And I worked with him some when his helper was out. And, and we were talking one day, and he had kind of convinced me that, you know, I needed to do something and go to school and get some type of degree and, and still come back to the industry. So uh, I went to Greenville Tech for a year try to get my grades up and stuff and then and then ended up transferring to Watford College which doesn't really have a heavy civil construction <laughs> degree program but you know great business uh, management program so finished up graduated there and then spent a year off outside of that um, outside of the industry and then ended up putting in an application as a product specialist or Yancey Brothers down in, in Georgia.
0: What drew you to the Yancey? Why apply with a cat dealer?
1: Well, I had worked for my uncle in the wholesale in propane and fuel business for a year out of college and just realized I missed Heavy Civil. When I was at Wofford, we had an internship time frame every January called, we called it an Interim. And so a couple of years I did internships with Morgan Corp and just that really solidified my love for the industry. Upon graduation, I uh, spent a year off and then just really kind of missed the industry. And so saw an ad um, that Yancey was, had an open position for a product specialist position down in Atlanta. And my girlfriend at the time, wife now, her the whole family had moved to Atlanta. And so that's kind of what, I guess, sparked the interest to apply. and and applied with them back in 2005, I guess it so.
0: And so you go to work for Yancey. I mean, what kind of work do you start out doing at Yancey, and how did you end up in the, the dealer instructor role?
1: So it was probably the coolest job at a cat dealership. Oh, yeah. Basically what I did was I was an operator trainer and would go out on new machine deliveries, go over the equipment with the, with the operators and with the companies, walk-arounds and go over all the features of the machine. And then would also assist in competitive machine demos. And this was before I got my CDI certification, and also picked up on doing the AccuGrade, is what they call it at the time, before it was Cat Grade and all the other iterations. But I picked up on that because of my previous experience with Morgan and the GPS and the machine control, and basically it helped kind of run that side of their business, trying to get people into into machine control. And this was back in, you know, two thousand five and six when it was pretty prevalent but not not nearly as prevalent as it is today on the heavy civil side. So I spent some time there doing that and then eventually kept growing and gaining the respect and the, the confidence of the clients and and sales reps, and went on and got my certification through Caterpillar, to get my certified dealer instructor. And that kind of solidified and started doing more training and consulting to some of the bigger quarries, bigger heavy civil guys in and around Atlanta.
0: So, you were, I mean, how old were you when you got your CDI?
1: Okay, I did, I guess in 2009. So, I would have been around the the right old age of 28.
0: So you were 28 and you were teaching probably a lot of older guys how to run their machines. I mean, how do you garner that respect as a young kid trying to teach these old dogs new tricks, so to
1: speak? Probably the biggest thing was just communication and how I communicated with them. Basically you go in and, and watch a guy operate a machine and you would see a couple of things that you can help improve on. And in each operator was kind of different you know you had some that you could come in and just kind of strike up conversation and they could tell by the way you're talking that you understood and you were confident in what you were doing and then you had some that were just not receptive so those guys usually I would ask to run the machine for a few minutes by myself and and whether it was a wheel loader or haul truck or dozer and once they could see that I could actually operate it it was pretty proficient they would be more uh, subjective to to input and constructive criticism at that point. But it took a while, you know, to really gain respect, you know, of some of these larger established contractors in and around the area.
0: As far as teaching guys go, what were some of the more common mistakes that you would see and have to correct down the field?
1: So a lot of the training I would do, I did a lot of waste handler training in the landfill. That was big thing in and around Atlanta, huge landfills. And most people think, you know, that working in a landfill is just, you just shove the trash off the edge and just make sure you keep the trash out of the way so that trucks can get in and out. But it's actually very scientific because you're trying to compact and reduce the amount of airspace in that landfill. The airspace is so valuable. And Working with trash, believe it or not, is probably one of the most difficult materials because every single load is different. One load's got tires. One load's got mattresses. This load's got regular garbage. And so you have to really adapt how you're operating to be able to deal with those changing dynamics. And, you know, taking those different things, the biggest thing I would see is guys wouldn't use a pattern. You know, they wouldn't run this way and then turn and go the opposite direction and then Every pass was different, you know, and when you're compacting, the key thing is repetitive and being an organized competitive, uh, organized manner mm-hmm. in how you're compacting that material.
0: I tell people I like going to landfills because it's so fascinating and so complex, <laughs> but people don't believe me.
1: It's an awesome place. It can be kind of smelly, but it's a really interesting, really interesting style of field.
0: Yeah, no kidding. So you're a CDI, which is a pretty good deal. And there really aren't very many CDIs in the United States. So you're a CDI. You've done all this training with Caterpillar. You have all these customers you're visiting. Life is really good. How do you get to the spot where you're like, you know what, I'm going to leave this whole cat world and go try to do this on my own? Like, at what point did you think like, man, I could go start my own company?
1: I, you know, growing up, my dad was an entrepreneur and started his own company. and That's my grandparents' were entrepreneurs as well in their own rights. And so I kind of had that, I guess, the blood in me. And it was one of those things where it's something I always wanted to do, and life's a lot about timing. And so when we moved to Atlanta, things were just booming. And about a month into it, I had actually considered leaving, and starting my own company once I had gotten there. But given I had given a commitment to Yancey and, and the folks there, I decided, you know, I'll stay there a year. And and at the end of the year, you know, the drive to start my thing was still there. I would do it after that. And 2006, six, seven, we all know what happened. The recession hit. So luckily, I didn't go out on my own then because I'd probably been bankrupt, some, you know, like on a lot of other good contractors. So it was kind of one of those things where, I was enjoying what I was doing, I was growing, but the industry and the business was just down so far from the recession that I was driving home one day, sitting in traffic, and basically said, you know what, if, if I don't try it now, you know, I had one very young child at the time, if I don't try it now, then I'll look back in 50 years and wish I had, you know, so I didn't want to live with that with that regret so that's kind of what sparked it was and my wife fortunately had a great job at the time and was able to finance this operation and run the household while I went on to to start this company and her and I actually started it together but it took about three years before I could draw a paycheck so (laughs) she was paying all the bills during that time
0: so she supported you guys for three years before you ever made any kind of money from the company 100%.
1: 100%.
0: Man. What are the first steps to even starting a company, and how did you end up in South Carolina?
1: So, Ben, we were both from South Carolina originally, and she's from Columbia area where we live now, and I'm from the upstate, but you know, all of our friends were here, and Atlanta was great for our careers, and, you know, it's a, it's a great place to live because there's always something to do, but it's very difficult to raise a family in, in a big city, and so we had just kind of burned out on the on the Atlanta scene and ready for a change and this was kind of a vehicle to get us back to South Carolina. But we didn't know where it would go. I had a good idea at the time because coming out of the recession a lot of the the mine contractors that I was consulting to in mining companies did not have contractors. You know, through the recession they had either stopped doing any any type of expansion work or anything like that. So, you know, or they were doing it in-house. So there was basically no market for it. But seeing things were kind of turning around 2012 when we started the company, I saw an opening there. So we said, you know what, let's put this thing together and and make a run for it. But if I had to do it over again, I mean, and most entrepreneurs would probably say the same thing, There's way more work than you could ever imagine. And it doesn't matter if you own a small restaurant or a residential home building business or a mining company. It is a amount of work and time and effort that even goes to starting up.
0: But you didn't know how to do any of that to start with, right? You just kind of had to figure it out?
1: (laughs) Yeah, we just kind of dove in there. And the first thing was, you know, trying to get, Licenses and all those things, and and the good thing about the mining industry, especially in Georgia, was they didn't require any type of license, contractors' license, or anything like that to get started. So that was pretty easy to get started without having to get licensure and and all of that. But from getting insurance to you know initially getting our MSHA Part 48B certification set up, uh, we had a lot of help actually with EMCHA. You know, getting all that stuff set up and basically just trial and error. And, you know, a lot of long hours, try one thing and and try something different the next day.
0: So you saw that opportunity in the mining world. Why do these mining companies use contractors? Why is it beneficial for them to hire you as opposed to do it themselves?
1: Well, probably the biggest thing is the fleet. You know, they typically run rigid frame off-highway trucks for the quarry production or the sand and gravel. And so typically the overburden removal or the reclamation side requires different trucks. You know, usually the top benches, are, the underfoot conditions are worse. And so it's going to require articulated trucks and excavators versus rigid frames and, and wheel loaders. So they typically contract it out because, honestly, you know, they're good at drilling, shooting, and crushing rocks. They're not as good as, at moving overburden and reclamation and all the other types of environmental projects that go into typical mine site.
2: Okay. How'd you
1: get
0: your first job?
1: <laughs> so the first job, this is a good one. The first job I ever had was I built a sidewalk and graded this lady's backyard that I worked with at Yancey She She's a good friend of mine. And she had a rental house and did a little work in the backyard. I had just left, started my own business. And she called me and said, hey, would you be interested in doing this? And I said, sure. You know, I had no equipment. I had a 2007 Tahoe and a couple of shovels and, and <laughs> stuff. So I'd never poured a concrete sidewalk in my life. but. So, uh, just kind of rented some equipment and, uh, you know, got out there and, and figured it out and ended up turning it out to be a really good little project. But that was our first, absolute first project that we ever had.
0: Is that, I mean, that kind of set the tone for running a earth moving company in the beginning, right? You just kind of figure it out, you just take it on, give it your best shot, figure it out as you go. Is that how most projects go?
1: I mean, I would say. Not as much so more, you know, these days because
2: yeah. the,
1: the consequences and the projects that we're doing are way larger and there's a lot more cost involved. And But really, it probably set the tone for business that we were starting because it was no matter what it takes, get in there, get it done, do a good project for the client and do what you say you're going to do on time and deliver. And so that kind of had always been my, my MO that I learned from my dad and grandparents. So I knew how to operate equipment. You know, it was just basically the will and way to, to get in there and get it done.
0: So how do you go from pouring a sidewalk to, you know, working at some of these big mines with rigid frame trucks yourself and, you know, this big fleet of equipment and you're, you know, buying new machines and working at different properties. I mean, how, how does that even happen? How many, you started in 2012, right? So it's been eight years?
1: Yeah, it's been eight years, and uh, eight years, March the
0: 12th. How do you go from Tahoe to you know acquiring big equipment and all that?
1: So, I mean, we started a company, and it really didn't have any capital to put in it. My wife put in the majority of the capital. But we just basically started out like most everybody else, in renting equipment. And I had a lot of the contacts with the quarry and aggregate producers, From all the time spent training and consulting to them, so I kind of had a a good black book, so to speak, of of potential clients, and they knew me and they trusted my abilities, and so we just word of mouth and just calling up old plant managers and area managers and foremen that I'd worked for and let them know I was in business, and, and finally got some opportunities to bid some work, and first big. Project we did we negotiated the terms so that the rental payments would be due in arrears, which they didn't want to do at first. They wanted everything in advance, and I told them I couldn't pay them in advance because I didn't have any money, you know. And so we were able to negotiate that initial contract, and it was about seven hundred thousand yards on the first one. So that was a pretty big jump. But my experience in, in mass production. estimating and production I wasn't scared of of a large project like that because the the proof was in the numbers.
0: So you go from pouring a sidewalk to moving 700,000 yards of dirt.
1: (laughs) There were a couple little jobs in there. They weren't, weren't nearly the size of one or the other.
0: So, But you were able to start and this is the kind of stuff I like talking about how to actually start a business and how the capital works and all that. So you were able to start you're able to get the fleet you needed to move 700,000 yards of dirt without very much capital up front because, one, you rented the equipment so you weren't you know, buying things and had these enormous payments to make, and then, two, you were just honest with them about you know, what you can afford and negotiated the terms so that you collected the money before you had to make the payments, right?
1: Yeah, and probably the biggest thing was you know being uh, an ex. Cat dealer employee for seven years. The first deal that we did was actually with the Komatsu dealer there in town. Nice. And so they were willing to take a chance on me. That, so uh, we put the deal together, and they trusted me because the sales rep that I was talking to was a previous Yancey employee that I knew very well, and, and they believed in me, and and I knew they had you know good confidence. Technicians and folks to keep us up and running. and It was honestly a gamble on both ends, but I think they probably they knew that I was going to do what it took. And I mean, I was on site every day because I was project manager, foreman, accountant, safety manager. I was everything, you know, right there in the beginning. You know, while my wife's at uh, home with our one year old, um, you know, and traveling and working we can afford to to go out and actually chase some work.
0: Did you make any big boo-boos when you first started out? you know did you have some mistakes that you made that you still kind of think about and chuckle about now?
1: Yeah, probably most of them actually kind of worked out, but the old saying is you don't know what you don't know is is a really good one because you know we were chasing some work that looking back, honestly we we probably didn't have any business going after it. But, you know, we were able to show that we had enough financial backing behind us, that we had enough competent operators, and that we would do the job safely, and that we could meet their specifications. And basically kind of talked our way into some of these. And, and we delivered on them. But, you know, looking back, we had one on one project. Over in Georgia, it was a mine reclamation project. and It was fairly large for the area, 80-plus acres. And I wasn't on this job full time. I had another guy that was kind of running it. And we were lining up permits to move the equipment out to another job. and had a phone conversation. And, you know, I said, what, when are you going to be done? And he said, well, I'll be done into you know, this week. Said, okay, well, great. So I came down on Thursday, and they weren't done. They weren't even close to being done. So here we were needing to go to another project. And we're, you know, we're only five or six employees at the time. So I jumped on a dozer and and ran until after everybody was gone and actually slept in the dozer (laughs) (laughs) overnight, you know, for a few hours and then started back up the next morning. So I wouldn't advise on doing that in today's climate. Uh You know, that was that's just kind of who I am. Is, you know, it, if I make a commitment on something, we're going to do whatever it takes to to get there. And and I won't ask, you know, our folks to do something that and I wouldn't be willing to do myself.
0: I guess that goes to a point, a lot of, I guess at your level, the size of your company, there aren't a lot of owners that can run equipment like you can. Does that, I mean, how does your equipment knowledge fit in with running the business and operating your jobs? Is it a big advantage for you to know how these machines ought to run and how these guys need to do their jobs out in the field?
1: I would say yes, because in everything that we do every day, it's all tied to efficiency and being an operator by trade, I'm able to, I can sit down with the estimator and, and help him understand the production rates or a scenario of how we would build this job. And then at the same time, I can, explain my vision to a project manager on how it needs to be done in order to come in at the time frame that we've estimated it in so and the other side is too is in the field you know the when I go out to the field it's very difficult for me because I want to jump on a piece of equipment but I rarely get to do it like I would like to but working with you know new form and superintendents and, and helping them understand the production aspects and, and conveying that knowledge to them on, you know, whether it's loader placement or haul truck placement or, you know, how do you handle this clay material versus sand to get it conditioned to, to meet moisture and density requirements. So I would say it's a huge advantage for me. The the business side is where I have really gotten an education, so to speak is learning how to run the business because building the jobs to me is not that difficult. It's running the business that's more difficult. Than
0: that. Well, on that, what about running a business that surprised you that you didn't really realize before you got into it?
1: Probably all of the extra hours. You know, starting out, it was seven days a week. I have three small children, so it was nights after they were going to bed weekend of the little things, of insurance renewals, of, you know, MSHA compliance, of, you know, printing out SDS sheets, you know. So it's all of the back office stuff that that most people don't see, the rain and, and all those things that affect our projects on a daily basis. Those are normal, but the stuff that happens in the back office, it's staggering how much work has to go into actually running a business and running it efficiently. We've implemented some few things here in the last year or so to try and help us understand and be able to see the business and how we're doing on projects in a snapshot and among moment's notice.
0: What do you wish people in the field and maybe your people or just in general understood about the business side of it and the money side of it? What do you wish whoever's in the dozer out in the field understood about the bigger picture?
1: Probably understanding the the stress from a safety aspect, oh. the money and cash flow, and, and all of those things, and equipment breaks down. That's somewhat stressful, but for what we do, our lifeblood is how safe we are on the job every day, and so. That's the biggest thing that keeps me up at night is making sure that we're safe, that we're taking care of people, that we're doing the right thing, because it only takes one one incident and you know, if you have a bad incident and it it runs your EMR up, then you can't do mining work. You may can go do subdivisions or, you know, something else, but you're not gonna work on gold mines, you're not gonna work, you know, for some of these large aggregate producers around.
0: Yeah. Well, now in, in today's climate, someone has an accident and everyone of their mother knows about it. Exactly. How have you created that safety culture at your company?
1: Well, from, you know, it starts from the top down for myself and, and making sure if, if I'm on a site, I've got all my PPE, I've got a flag up, I've got strobe lights, wheel chops, and basically pushing that downhill and, and making sure everybody's doing the same thing. And then yeah, you know, I expect the guys to call me out or, you know, my PM or superintendent, you know, if they're not doing something safe and just creating that culture of looking out for each other and making sure that we're sharing that knowledge and disseminating it out to the field. And coming from being an operator instructor, that was, you know, the core of the CAT certified training program was preaching the safety and the safety to the walk around and the machine to the efficient operation. And so when we do task training, I do a lot of task training myself actually for the guys because I want them to learn it how I've learned it from Caterpillar, you know, or how it is stated in the back of the operation.
0: Going back to to scaling the company, I think it got to the point And this is my understanding, you know, talking to you a lot in the past, it got to the point where you guys were growing fast and growing well beyond just Columbia, South Carolina. You were going out of state. You were going to places far from home. At what point did you realize that wasn't necessarily the direction you wanted to head in and that wasn't necessarily sustainable long term? And I mean, because everyone thinks just nonstop growth is everyone's objective, but it's really not always doesn't always mean success at the end of the day. So how did you start to come to grips with, you know, hey, maybe we don't want to go across the entire United States doing this, and we really want to focus on being at home every night?
1: So my wife and I, we have three kids now, but several years ago we were working three different states and about six different crews, and I was running seven days a week and 16-hour days and just was just trying to maintain. But at the time, you know, being a new company, it's very difficult to say no to a client and or no to an employee. So it took me going through some really tough situations to understand that sometimes you have to be able to say no to move forward. And at the end of the day, we've got a lot of people that are working, and they're in hotels, they're, Working away from home and stuff. And, and we were having turnover issues because it was just really burning some of these folks out. And I realized that long-term, you know, we wanted to be in the Midlands. And the Midlands of Columbia is not a big area. There's not a you know huge amount of growth here. You know, so the long-term potential, you know, to be a, a $150 million a year company or something like that was was not necessarily here, but that wasn't my goal. My goal was to create a company that was manageable and that was sustainable long term because you know if we grew too fast, we realized that you know what to see this company, we're going to have to travel to North Carolina to Georgia places beyond and and I just saw what it was, how it was burning some of our guys out and myself as well, and said, you know. Economy is good enough right now. We don't necessarily need to travel, you know, to Roanoke, Virginia, so to speak. You know, we like big jobs. Me and your jobs are great, but, you know, we can stay close to home and diversify our portfolio a little bit and be able to be home every night. And it has really worked. Our, our turnover rate has gone way down. We've got, you know, a lot of employees there, you know, over a couple of years continue with us and so that's been a big thing is just kind of retooling and not necessarily concentrating just mining work but also commercial industrial work in the midlands and somewhat throughout the state of South Carolina as well
0: so how do you turn work down i mean how do you politely tell a customer that you you'd worked with before you know hey we just we can't do that anymore
1: That's a very interesting question it I guess I came upon this revelation a couple of years ago that sometimes you just have to say no. And because a lot of times I would, I'd be willing to say yes and, and work a weekend or a night or something like that to get this one task done, but realized that it was just burning everybody out. So, you know, a lot of times you just have to step back and say, you know, in order for us to deliver the same quality product safely, and within schedule, sometimes it's just not achievable. And mm. we've recently turned down bidding some work because it just did not align and it would have stretched us too thin and we would have possibly ended up not meeting a schedule and meeting the client's needs. So I would rather say no and not do the work than overcommit. deliver.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's something I've struggled with starting our business is it, you do have to say no to often really good opportunities. You know, it's easy to say no to opportunities that are just, they don't align at all, but then there's great opportunities that will come our way that, that still just don't align with our mission, but they look really, really enticing at face value. And those are the ones I've struggled to say no to.
1: That's what most, uh, most young business owners do because it's, when you're starting out, you're so hungry that, you know, you'll take just about anything. And once you get established, you realize what you're really good at and what you're not good at. And the best thing to do is when you're not good at something, you know, to subcontract that out or let someone else do it, you know, and that's usually the better way to do things.
0: Yeah. Now, so can we go back to you had a one-year-old at home. You're starting this business your wife is supporting you and in the family, everything, so you can go do this. And you don't make a paycheck for three years. You're working 12, 15 hours a day, weekends, nights, whatever you have to do to make this work. How do you still be a parent and, and a husband at the end of the day? How do you wrestle with that, and how do you figure that out in those early years?
1: That's probably the toughest part. And anybody that runs a business or owns a business will tell you the same thing, is being able to separate Work from family. And, you know, my wife is, is very understanding of, of what it takes. And she's now in the business pretty much full time. She takes care of the kids in the afternoons, but she's with me and we live it. It's still seven days a week because it's when you've got all the responsibility for safety and everything else, and all these employees that depend on you to make good decisions and to make sustainable decisions. I think that comes with the territory, you know, and if you're not willing to be able to think about it and understand how a decision can impact not just you and your family and your bottom line, but how it affects everyone else, you know, in your organization. And so it was difficult early on. You know, my kids were very young. I can remember driving back from North Carolina and talking to my wife on the phone. She had dropped the kids off that morning at daycare. I'm driving back from North Carolina. we each other on 95 talking on the phone and she's going to North Carolina for a business meeting and I'm driving back so I can get back to get the kids in time for them to get out of school. So There's definitely been sacrifices and not one that I would take back Because I see how you know we're positively impacting our my family and employees and our clients as well. You know, when we do a good job, we do it on time. That disseminates. That goes downhill. You know, the the project managers are home. You know, in time to eat dinner with their family, and and everybody's just better off. So we try to think of it that way. But it's more of a family atmosphere and it's a very difficult thing to be able to separate it and i truly don't think it's possible if you're as passionate um, as i am about what you do it's almost impossible to completely separate it but being able to turn it off i've gotten a lot better probably the last two years i'm surrounded by amazing people people that have allowed me to do that because they do the estimating and the project management and the stuff that, that I used to have to do all alone.
0: How is it working with your
1: wife? It, it's great. You know, she's, she's way smarter than I am on a lot of aspects of the business. And she, she runs the office portion of it. She is a born sales rep. Her father was a sales rep, Her sister's one, and she is just a born, salesperson so I, I know it's difficult for her not really being able to utilize her skills as she once did but i think we both agree that this is a a vehicle to get to where our ultimate goal was where she could have the opportunity or the option not to have to work yeah and that was kind of the goal to get to that point and if i can achieve that you know then i think it's been successful and all the sacrifices and the long days and the early early mornings, late nights, you know, are definitely worth it. But it can be challenging because we both have very strong opinions, but we respect each other's opinions. And, and there's always someone that has to win the argument. So I would say it's probably fifty-fifty. <laughs>
0: <laughs> when you go home, is it you have to turn it off and just say, you know, hey, we can't talk about work anymore? Or do you have to be deliberate about that? How do you handle? Is there any kind of separation since you guys work together and within the same business? Cause I think that's pretty unique.
1: It's probably not as much as I would want it to be. And, and her as well. It's one of those things I continue to work on every day. And I can remember, you know, for the last, probably six previous years, I came home every night and did work on my computer until nine ten o'clock at night. And, you know, about two years ago, I kind of changed that and realized that the work that I was getting done after my kids went to bed and, you know, was trying to do stuff late, it just wasn't as productive. Yeah. And so now, you know, I get up super early in the morning and I usually get more done early in the morning than I can do late at night. But yeah, the, the nights of late, late nights to the office and at the dinner table working on a bit or something. Those are long gone now, but it's one of those things. You definitely have to deliberately shut it off and turn off. And there's some times when you can't, you know, if we have some critical project that's going on, working late or something like that, as an owner, you still, you have to be plugged in.
0: In those early years, did you ever feel a little crazy, like just sitting there like, what the hell am I doing? (laughs) Or were you, were you pretty damn certain on where you were headed?
1: I had a pretty good vision of where we were going. There were times when I I really questioned how we were getting there, because like I said, when we were traveling for work, it was very difficult because, you know, if we're running a 10 person team and one person lays out, that's 10%, you know, so we didn't have a lot of spares or a lot of guys on the bench to, to help out. So that was, Extremely stressful, you know, in the early days, just running very, very lean. And so we've kind of changed that philosophy now where we, we try to tend to be 10% heavy across the board, you know, so that we've always got people, you know, whether we're training, or someone's out for sick or family or whatever, we're always out, to fill that gap. But yeah, spending the night in a bulldozer. In Gordon, Georgia. <laughs> that, <laughs> that, yeah, I sometimes questions. And looking back now, I mean, from when I started, it's kind of hard to see how I used to do all the different things that I did. A lot of them I wasn't very good at. But you know, I've got a really great team now that that is a lot better at those things than I used to be.
0: As far as your kids go, now that they're a little older, and you've obviously more than one now. Do you want them to grow up around the business or what, I mean, what kind of life do you want for them? What, what are you trying to teach them?
1: Kind of like anybody, you know, I, I want them to be happy. I want them to do what they love to do. And, and that was kind of a big thing that, you know, my dad did for me was, you know, he gave me the option to try to do, because he knew I loved equipment and construction. And so he gave me that opportunity and it was up to me to make that decision. And I would do the same thing. You know, my, whatever they want to do, that's what I would would prefer and ask them to do, you know, not just because I, I love equipment. Now, surely, you know, I would love for them to, to grow up in the business and, and work with them, my wife and I one day. But, you know, it's not worth forcing it because this is a tough enough business, you know, with the weather and the rain. It's just all of the other things that go into it that if you don't absolutely love it, it will be
0: a lot. Yeah, it's no joke. It's a struggle. I guess my dad did, did the same thing for me. He just, he let me go for it and do whatever I wanted to do. Both my parents, my mom too, they both gave me just a really, really long leash to do whatever I wanted. And that's why I ended up in construction with, you know, no prior experience with it. No family, no friends, nothing. I just kind of found my way into it and fell in love like you did. Going back to, I guess, operating and the business, what makes a good operator? And I guess part two of that question would be a lot of people want to get into a seat. What, now that you've done it and you're an employer now, one, what makes a good operator when they get into the seat? And two, how does someone get into the seat these days?
1: So, you know, probably the, the biggest thing that makes a good operator is their attitude and how organized they are You think of an operator well, Why would you need to be organized You know, It's not just Getting in a machine and firing it up And taking off it's The first thing obviously is Doing a walk around And catching that loose bolt That's going to allow a track pad to come off During shift Or you know, a grease line that's not delivering Grease adequately To a, a grease point So that's really where it starts and usually, when, when we find somebody who's really good at a walk around, that's all you need. You can teach them the rest. And and there is a lot of raw talent that is required you know, to be an operator. But the first thing is, is having somebody organized that can do a good walk around and keep the cab clean. That's my number one. Like, you can not be able to hit the ground with a blade. But if the cab is clean, you know you've got my respect. But uh-huh. we can teach you the rest. But you know we look for for folks that are not necessarily grew up on a farm, but some people that have had some type of experience. You know, whether running—I mean, it could be running a lawnmower, you know, or something like that—that that has some type of dexterity that allows them to to run a piece of equipment because you know whether you're driving a haul truck or a dozer or a track load or whatever, you are using all four extremities that typically at the same time to do different tasks. But once we find someone that, you know, organized, has a good attitude and wants to learn, you know, they fuel their machine, they agree that they take care of it. And I always make the joke that, you know, you guys have the best jobs in the world. I get to drive Lamborghinis and Ferraris and Bugattis around the job site all day. Oh, yeah. You know, as expensive as this equipment is. But we try to take people that, you know, as we start them out, you know, whether it's running a skid steer or running a haul truck or a roller, and just kind of watch them and progress them. And it's difficult a lot of times on them a bigger production job to take someone and teach them, you know, well, hey, we're gonna down this three forty nine and let you go run it for an hour. Well, probably not because that's pretty expensive. but the way that I got my shot when I was younger was at lunchtime when everybody else would stop and take a take a lunch break, I would ask permission first, you know, and then go jump on a piece of equipment and knock around a little bit and then, Next thing you know, one day a guy doesn't show up, and you're a dozer man that day. So that's the other side of the drive to want to do it. And, you know, in today's climate, you know, unemployment rate is low, and, and every contractor has the same number one issue. It's not rain. It's not workload. It's people. And trying to find those right people that have the right attitude to help contribute to the company culture, but also that want to grow and, and like what they do. If you hate driving a haul truck every day, you probably need to find something else to do besides drive a haul truck.
0: For people starting out in those early years, knowing what you know now, do you have any kind of advice for them?
1: I would say I had a guy reach out to me the other day on Instagram and he was kind of asking the same thing: How, 23 years old, you never know, operating anything. How do I get on, you know, a construction site? How do I get to wearing operated piece of equipment? Yeah. And nowadays, when I was growing up, all I had was equipment world magazine. But today, you have the internet. I mean, Caterpillar has a vast amount of videos that are free that you can go on their website. And look up in this operating technique and walk around and all that stuff. So it's like studying for a job interview before you ever go in. If you're going to interview with, with Nestle, you probably want to know something about Nestle products before you go into the interview. So yeah. just doing the research. And I mean, it's amazing what you can learn on YouTube and all these other sites today. I mean, I've got a YouTube video that I've showed several excavator operators of a Lee Bear 9800 bench loading 793s, and I use that. Obviously, we don't run that big of equipment, but I use it because it's a perfect example of correct truck spotting. And so just the amount of knowledge that's out there on the internet, if you're a the young person, and you're wanting to get in this industry, is just go soak up as much of that as you can. And, you know, if you've got that knowledge and you can spill that out in an interview or, you know, over the phone in a five minute phone interview, then somebody's going to give you a shot.
0: Yeah. So, and I asked Dylan Stevens the same thing. So, if someone came to you and said, Hey, I'm ready to go after it and I've been studying up and I don't have experience, but I'm willing to learn and, and willing to work, and then they actually prove that, are you? You're probably willing to hire someone like that, right? Even if they have no experience?
1: 100%. I mean, we've got, you know, some of our best hands have been folks that didn't have any experience at all and and honestly, you know, coming from the training aspect, a lot of times it's, you know, the old saying that it's hard to teach an old dog new tricks. There's some truth to that. And I'm the same way, you know, it's hard for me to to learn something new in today's climate, but you know if we can take a younger operator and show them how to bench load trucks from day one then they don't get the opportunity to catch a bad habit you know in the way they operate a piece of equipment if you can show them on day one how to do a proper walk around that's going to stick with them yeah you know but if if you give them a substandard training session then that's going to be their first experience and that's what's going to that's what's going to set the tone for for the rest of that career Gotcha.
0: Okay. Man, we've uh, we've covered quite a bit here. We're coming up on an hour. We're uh, we're damn near out of time. Is there anything else you wanted to cover or, or, or mention or, or story or anything before we wrap up here?
1: Well, uh, one thing, I've, what I've seen you do in the last over a year now, it's refreshing to see the emphasis that's now being put on heavy civil construction and mining. And, I mean, it will only continue to get better and me, I'm 38 years old, but you know, to be on social media and stuff, and using that as a communication tool to communicate to you know our team because I don't get to see every job and all of these folks every day, you know. So being able to communicate and give them, you know, a shout out and and you know, I think that that means a lot, you know, to, to everyone and given recognition where recognition is due but it's another vehicle for us to try and communicate and get people attracted to this industry that you know is dying for good people yeah. and you know there's great career opportunities you know if you don't like getting wet or dirty or if you don't like getting up before 8am this is probably not the industry for you but you know if you like equipment and you like to see something built out of nothing, then, you know, it's a viable career option. It doesn't require going into a quarter of a million dollars, you know, student loan debt. Either.
0: I guess one more question here going off that. Has social media helped your business? Is it beneficial to your business from, a, from an owner's perspective?
1: I would say so. It's the, probably the hardest thing is to measure, you know, it kind of started as an experiment for us about two years ago. And now, you know, um, I would say that probably the biggest thing for me is not how many people we're attracting to come to work for us, but being able to share our stories, share what we do. Our, you know, Instagram account, in my opinion, is a better resume than our website, you know, because it's hard to update your website daily.
2: Yeah. You know, whereas
1: Instagram, we can show progress of projects and people can follow along and see that. And I think that really helps, you know, solidify who we are as a company and, and what we believe in and the projects that we build and people that we employ. And I think it's very difficult to measure it, but I would definitely say yes, it, it, it has been very impactful.
0: Awesome. I had to give a plug to social media in the mining world, if nothing else here. (laughs) So I really appreciate your time today. Thanks for sharing a little bit about your business. And it's, uh, he's Contour Mining and Construction out of Columbia, South Carolina, Heath Hanna. Um, So you can probably, what's the easiest way to reach you if if people want to reach out to you? Instagram? Just send you a DM? Instagram
1: or or on our guest in the DM. Sweet. People ask me all the time, who's your social media? person that will me yeah you know because i really look at it as probably is one of my more important responsibilities every day because we're telling our story you know and, and trying to get it out there to our employees and, and everybody else so.
0: it's like anything else like safety like you were talking about earlier it starts in the top down so if you're not sharing no one else will but you're leading by example for sure Cool. Well, thanks thanks again, Heath. I appreciate all your time today and, and hopefully some people found this valuable.
1: Thanks so much, Aaron. I enjoyed it.
0: All right. We'll talk soon.